mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Hello and welcome to the JMT Podcast, December 2016. I'm Jeff LaPointe here with Greg LaSala, and we're stoked to bring you this mega holiday edition of the podcast. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, Jeff. And yes, welcome, welcome to this holiday edition. Uh, we hopefully got a great podcast uh, for you guys here. Will be uh, interesting, fun, and hopefully brief. Yeah, you yeah, know? like a like a like a treadmill run brief. Like, what are you thinking? Well, no, since I don't run on treadmills, more like a you know quick, brisk walk. Yeah, uh, along the ocean type of thing, like a windy walk. I got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, you know, I mean, our September issue is actually going to be bundled with this for technical reasons. Is that a good? I think that's a good way. I that's don't think good. we should go into specifics, but yeah. yeah. But they well, did They did withhold our pay, though. All one dollar. Wait, you got a dollar? What? I'm, you, I'm making the big bucks Different now. contract. But seriously, so this JMT is kind of chock full of some good stuff. We're going to be covering a little bit of synthetic cannabinoids, uh, maybe fit in a little baclofen toxicity. Yeah, there's some kratom. Uh, there is some kratom, some mm-hmm. teletox, and cyanide poisoning. That's a... That's a nice, just a, a fruitcake of, of tox topics, don't you think? Oh, I saw what you did there. I like did you? that. Yeah, I the holiday fruitcake thing. Was it? That's not offensive. Uh, it Border- seems to be pretty uh... borderline. <laughs> All right, well, let's do it. All right, let's get into it. Boom. All right, man. Where do you want to start? I was, I was thinking. You know, you know where I want to start. Well, I know your love for uh, cannabinoids and all things. So why don't we start with a little synthetic? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, that's a. It's a really interesting paper. Um, so, the um, the title is the clinical effects of synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists. Oh man, I hate that. I hate that phrase. We're gonna get to that. But compared with marijuana in an emergency department patients with acute drug overdose by Zerova at all. Well, Jeff, why don't we start with that first? Why do you hate that term so much? Um, I just see that the the cannabinoids are already pretty well described um, one because people have been working on those since like the 60s but just because we found out about the synthetics in 2010 the toxicologist when we became interested we kind of tried to just make up a new term for it one and two um, it's inaccurate you know so the the term kind of popped up um, and nothing against the authors I mean you see this used interchangeably and it's a it's a it's a cool paper and I'm glad we're gonna talk about it but just small tangent you, you see this kind of come up as a way to say that the, the synthetics that we see have a different structure than THC. But if that's the case, then uh, the endogenous cannabinoids need to be renamed too with a fancy name because they structurally look totally different. So it just works better, in my opinion, to call phytocannabinoids that look like THC, classical cannabinoids that are synthetics but look like THC, like nabilone or marinol or something like that. The, the you know, synthetics that we see in, in, in spice and, and stuff like that, and then uh, endogenous cannabinoids. And that just kind of is what has been used for, you know, 40, 50 years, and it just seems to be more clear. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. That absolutely makes, you know, a lot of sense and all. I do like the term, though, for just this one point is that 
it really differentiates between you know the synthetic cannabinoids or what some of us still call synthetic marijuana still used in the ER today and you know your regular marijuana or as you said the phytocannabinoids um, because these are just two separate entities that give you completely different signs and symptoms and even though that term as you say and say it so eloquently is perhaps not completely correct i think it does give us the idea that these are just two separate things we shouldn't even be thinking about them the same and we maybe know that in toxicology but i don't think that's known in eds throughout the u.s right yeah i mean anything that that you can do to separate that in the hearts and minds of people between phyto or traditional cannabinoids and, and these gnarly ones i think is a good thing but um yeah uh, yeah i just don't agree with the, that that term the way to do it um anyways Wow. Tangent one. We're like right into first first topic and we've already gone all pear-shaped. So basically what this is, is this is an analysis of a larger data set uh, that was used um, presumably elsewhere, but of, of 3,739 patients. And they picked out 17 patients who uh, were reported uh, or believed or someone believed that they took a synthetic cannabinoid and compared with 70 patients who were confirmed at some point to be exposed um, to, to THC and exposed, uh, prove their exposure with finding metabolites in the urine. And so, uh, and, and so look, I think this is cool because, you know, while we know this anecdotally, the plural of anecdote is not data. And it's a really good thing to, you know, show these side by side and really bring out uh, how that can be different. Uh, so I like the purpose a ton. But it's a little bit tough to, to totally do that, even though I think we inherently know that by going through all the data. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. And, you know, if we go back to kind of what you were just saying at the beginning, we, we focus on how they confirmed that these people were exposed to either marijuana or synthetic cannabinoids. So they confirmed they were using marijuana by doing a urine drug assay, which we all know marijuana and heavy users can stay in the urine as a metabolite for up to a month. So all this proved was that they were exposed within the last month. Doesn't show that they were intoxicated by it, um, you know, within that day or days. So really, that's a little bit deceiving. And then it's not like they did any analytical testing on the synthetic cannabinoids. Really, it was just all self-reporting. Right. So, I mean, what you mean, what, and they do address this. They say that, like, look, there's probably no confirmation bias because the patients all believed they were getting it. And the docs all believe that they got it in the medical record. But in, in this case, it's just really tough because there are so many of these structures. There's so many of these synthetic cannabinoids. They all might, and they're not, you know, apples to apple. They all might act totally differently. And we know that, you know, I mean, this, this isn't like high level quality assurance product coming through. They could be not only different cannabinoids and different doses um, in different parts of the packet, um, there could also be various adulterants there. So it's kind of hard to, to know what to take from it. But what do you think about, what do you think about like the clinical results that they reported? The clinical results, the authors go on to say that there was, you know, this significant association that the uh, synthetic cannabinoids caused increased clinical toxicity when compared to marijuana, specifically regarding neurotoxicity and cardiotoxicity. But then you look at the numbers, right? The heart rate for the synthetics was basically, you know, 102 was the mean. For marijuana was 94. It's not a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, you know, cardiotoxicity, dysrhythmias were absolute number of two for synthetics and one for the regular marijuana. So again, an absolute difference of one. Is that really significant? 
Okay, you look at myocardial infarction, there actually were a greater number in the marijuana group who had evidence of myocardial infarction compared to the synthetic group. Now, the percentages were different because there were much greater percentage right. of people that had been exposed to marijuana. But again, you know, I, I think saying, you know, significant association, maybe by data, but by absolute numbers, perhaps a little bit of an overreach. Yeah. And again, as you said, anecdotally, we all know these people present more sympathomimetic. You know, they, they come in having smoked this synthetic marijuana and... Or oh, you just did it. Oh, I just did. See, oh, there man. you go. Look at you. There you go. But, you know, they come in having smoked these synthetic cannabinoids and they are more sympathomimetic or they have more severe toxicity. We know this anecdotally. Right. I'm just not sure this database shows that. And then, yeah, and it, it matters when, you know, 2009 to 2013 is the study period. And those cannabinoids that were on the street, like the synthetic ones, are different than the ones that they saw in New York City this last summer or that they saw in Los Angeles and like those big bursts where people, you know, they kind of like have like that zombie-ish picture where they're just kind of, they almost look like the Methodonians where they're just kind of like, you know, barely maintaining proprioception and just kind of not there. So totally different effects. And, you know, at this point in 2016, 2017, it'll be, it's just really, you know, important to end up knowing uh, what exact sub you're dealing with. But I think that this is this is important work. It's, it's really great that they want to start making that really clear to everyone. Um, and I think I'm really excited to see what they do in the next steps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, you know, this day and age, we're going to have to start getting analytical testing for these synthetic cannabinoids because there are so many different ones. But you're right. This paper helps and kind of start differentiating between marijuana or those phytocannabinoids, as you say, and the synthetic cannabinoids. Yeah. This is a good start. And hopefully every paper from now on really does kind of uh, stress the difference of what we're seeing. Also, how to treat them. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Cool. Good stuff. All right. So why don't we continue with our synthetic cannabinoids? The next article is acute toxicity associated with the use of 5F derivations of synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists with analytical confirmation. This study was done out of London. Uh, the authors are Rochelle Abushdid et al. They start off with talking about how over 142 different synthetic cannabinoids have been reported from 2008 to 2014 by the European Monitoring Center wow. for Drugs and Drug Addiction. Yeah, huge numbers, just like we were talking about. This was a case where they got analytically confirmed uh, metabolites of synthetic cannabinoid receptors 5F-AKB48 and 5F-PB22. Now, the case was of a 19-year-old girl bought in having seizures. And the case is really not that important because there were a lot of confounders here. It's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, it says here this girl went to a head shop and bought uh, cannabis tea, a sachet of mushroom tea, two LSD blotters. Oh, and she's also on fluoxetam and citalopram. What do you think, Jeff? I think that's a that's a lot. This is this is fun because I mean, uh, you know, the the last two authors on the paper, uh, doctors Dargan and Wood. I mean, they kind of some of the big names in uh, a lot of these fancy kind of designer stuff, and they've done a lot of great great work with it. These are two of the the newer subs out there. It's great that you can go ahead and get confirmation. They actually got you know actual concentrations in the blood but yeah if, if someone's doing reported psilocybin and then they give a good dose right they give that 1.5 grams it's pretty good psilocybin trip dose um and then these blotters and the and the cannabis tea sachets mm -hmm. um you know that's like sachets and grains i don't know how to dose those 
Um, but yeah, it's really, it's really tough. And, you know, as you, obviously, as you read the case, the clinical features of it, you could, you could almost just say like, you know, I could start this and say a 19 year old female who is previous, you know, is, is currently taking fluoxetine and citalopram presents to the emergency department and then put the, put the clinical data in. It kind of makes sense. Or I could say a 19 year old female who took a bunch of uh, psilocybin and got freaked out and gave you the clinical information to kind of go, ah, I buy that. Or, or I'd taken, you know, LSD. And so it's really hard to, to know that the one, the great thing about the case, well, we should say that this person presented after taking this smorgasbord of all kinds of weird stuff, some of which she knew what was or what wasn't, and um, and had, you know, had some clonus and had some tachycardia, and it resolved with just a whiff of midazolam. Yeah, that was interesting. I, that was a little interesting. You got one milligram of midazolam, and then everything, like, went better. But, but you know, what's, what's interesting is, you know, after all that, and you kind of will be like, oh, I don't know what to make of this. When you go and look at the concentrations um, that were isolated from her samples, they're, like, some of the biggest reported. Unless, I, unless I'm misreading that. I mean, because they're really high. No, they are. They are really high. You know, and they're like four or five-fold kind of what we've seen in the literature before. So very high doses. But again, like you said, it was one milligram of midazolam, stopped all seizure activity, and the patient was just observed. So uh, clinically, how significant is that? Yeah. Now, I, mean, I will so. say what's really cool about the study, though, is that they uh, – then go on and give a little review regarding uh, the 5FKB22 and 5FPB22. Some new information that I didn't know. So that I found was kind of the best thing of this uh, article. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want, you know, and also, I mean, forget that the case had a lot of confounders. I mean, that's our life, and that's what we have to deal with. But when you're going to do a a you know novel psychoactive substance or a synthetic cannabinoid type study, like getting this kind of confirmation is really key. You know, and if you can, if you can get the drug, that's great. If you can get the drug, the blood and the urine, that's kind of awesome too, because you can see, you know, serum, you can see what's in the drug itself and you can see, you know, any metabolites that you might find. And some people might argue they don't even need, they don't even need urine, but I think that's just really great that they were able to, to get that kind of confirmatory testing that I think is really important because now, you know, those are on our radar. And since we've been talking about this, there's four more out there that we don't know about. So, you know, keeping our radar up and making sure that we keep sampling these things, whether it's whether it's in wastewater after an you know, electronic music show or whether it's in patients like this, I think that's really important. And it's definitely very much worth a read to go through and, and see some of the review on it. And if you look at, you know, for all your structure fans out there, there's just that F in the other structure um, is a fluorine. So sometimes these things are halogenated or fluorinated, um, which is thought, at least by some of the people who make them, um, we think, to increase its potency. So it's, it's kind of like really kind of cool things to think about um, as we as you kind of wade into this world. Yeah, and you know, what's interesting is this uh, 5FPB22, right? They describe it as relatively new, but they found that in rats, it can cause hypothermia and bradycardia up to six hours post-ingestion, and also a delayed seizure up to four hours post-ingestion in rats. And I know when I saw some of my uh, synthetic cannabinoids, a lot of them were sympathomimetic, but some of them actually did, you know, had respiratory depression, had bradycardia, you know, and of course, we didn't get any analytic methods, you know, otherwise I'd write a paper like this, but it was just self-reported. And now you can see, hey, yeah, that is a possibility looking at this metabolite. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. They like that they include, you know, they kind of do a good job of um, including this patient's data, including the analytic data, including what's known um, with, it's almost like a mini little review chapter, like you said including uh, what, what's known on animal data, and then also including what's reported on some of the drug online forums, which is kind of like giving you an overall really great, well-rounded view. Um, the rat stuff always 
makes me laugh because it, a lot of the rats, when they get cannabinoids, they splay their limbs out and just lay there. It's really kind of, I always think of that. So, you know, just kind of sum up, you know, good work by the authors getting this, you know, these confirmatory testings on the serum and urine. And, you know, hopefully more of this comes out and more people start doing this testing so we kind of know exactly what we're dealing with and kind of can attribute signs and symptoms to specific synthetic cannabinoids, not just the group as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I think the biggest danger we could do besides what we said in the other, when we were talking about the other paper, was like, you know, kind of you know, associating these with just typical um, classical cannabinoids or, or, or phytocannabinoids is, is assume that they're all the same thing. And just kind of let our guard down because these are going to change all the time to skirt and take advantage of any regulatory loopholes that are out there. You're actually going to be able to hear my stomach in all these. It's stomach, colon, I'm not sure. Are you hungry? I don't know. I don't know what end we're dealing with. It could go either way. All right. All right. How about, uh, how about some Kratom? You want to go into the kratoms? How do you how do you say kratom? You kratom or kratom? Kratom. I'm a kratom man. You're a <laughs> you're a kratom man. So uh, the next the next article that we're going to talk about is is entitled "Suspected Adulteration of Commercial Kratom Products with Seven Hydroxymetragene by uh, Doctors Lidecker et al. And so this is a really interesting thing. I, I guess a quick intro on uh, kratom. If you're not familiar with it, it's pretty interesting a substance that's come into uh, the sites of the FDA recently uh, and DEA uh, because this, while it is regulated and illicit in parts of Southeast Asia and Australia, it is currently not regulated and uh, wild, widely available here. Um, I actually bought a small sample because I have like the, you know, like the uh, kind of toxicologist sort of collection of uh, these sort of things like the memorabilia. Um, I was able to actually get some from a local head shop in San Diego, just very easy peasy. And so uh, this is a this is a plant that sometimes people chew in Southeast Asia, low doses has some stimulant-like effects and higher doses has some opioid-like effects, um, and even some kappa opioids. And it's used in this country as a drug of abuse of a way to um, substitute uh, opioids as a way to treat pain and as a way to avoid withdrawal. Uh, and some of the authors of this, Drs. Babu and Boyer, have done um, other publications with this in the past. So it's, it's actually pretty interesting. And what they're doing in this paper is they in-house developed their own uh, chromatography standards uh, for two of the psychoactive substances in Kratom, um, mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine, and then went and bought a bunch of samples, which is always super fun. You just go out to the head shop or, or online and buy a bunch of stuff. And then they compared the concentration of these two substances in what should be there naturally. So pretty interesting stuff, Greg. Yeah, and I mean, the reason they picked the uh, specifically the 7-hydroxymetragenine is that it shows that it has an affinity 17 times that of morphine for the mu and kappa receptors. So the authors then postulated that, you know, this is responsible for the analgesic effects that are seen with Kratom as you pointed out in the beginning, as well as maybe the addictive effects of it. Right. Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty interesting. And, and what they found when they went through this is, you know, just about all, not all, uh, but just about all of the samples they tested had way more of the 7-hydroxy, so that more potent analog or that more potent substance when compared to natural kratom leaves. So that's pretty interesting. And so 
the the thought is, and this is kind of you know just kind of phraseology, but they use they use the word adulteration. So what do you what do you think about that? Uh, you know, I mean, this was seen that it's a uh, actually due to auto oxidation of metragenine uh, leads to seven hydroxy metragenine. And so if you have something that is from auto oxidation, I'm not really sure that can be counted as an adulteration. I, I understand what the authors were saying, but I think it's more like you see with cannabis. They're just stronger strains that are sold right. and that contain more of this me metabolite. Why? Because you get more of a high and it's more addictive. So, right. it's, you know, there's that reason. So, you know, you get into the semantics, you're right. Adulteration was probably the wrong word here. Right. Uh, maybe more like this is your kind of super kratom. Right. Right. I like that. I mean, I, that hasn't been trademarked. We should probably. Yeah. That's patented. That. Thank you. Yeah. On a nickel every time someone smokes it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah. I mean, adulteration is a, is a legal term, right? It's a regulatory term. So if you, if you sell me apple juice and I, I isolate orange juice in there, you've, you know, it might've been added or, or, you know, serotypically adulterated, but it's hard to say here whether, you know, I think what, you know, that's that's just semantics, but I think what the really important thing is, is what they're pointing out and that, you know, whether or not it's been doctored or added to this, the point of the matter is that commercially available kratom samples have increasing concentrations of 7-hydroxymetrogeny. I think that's the I think that's the really the take home here other other than some really cool in-house chemistry that I'm I'm pretty jealous of their lab and their abilities to be able to do this and it's also a really good uh, really good review of some of the uses of kratom and kind of the state of the state of the world and as far as kratom go. Yeah, and the authors, you know, also remind us that kratom is now classified under the Dietary Supplement Act from 1994, you know, Oof, evil. So we know it's not well regulated. Uh, again, as you said, the FDA is looking at it right now to see if there should be more regulations on it, but it is still commercially available in many states. So right. this is something that you're definitely going to be seeing in your ERs. That's a kind of a crazy place to be though, right? Like we're between DEA schedule one, as in like, you can't study it. You can't use it. It can't ever be around and Deshay, which is like wild west. Like there's <laughs> gotta be, there's gotta be something reasonable in the middle that we can actually work with. I mean, this might have, this might have potential to help with the opioid epidemic. This might, but, but it needs to not be, it needs to not be the wild west. I mean, come on, Jeff. This is politics. Nothing's reasonable. Right. Uh, veer off from the illicit drugs that you can get at head shops to the terrorist poisons, uh, yeah. namely cyanide. So this article is titled, The Vitamin B12 Analog, Cobinamide, is an Effective Antidote for Oral Cyanide Poisoning. It was done by Leah Al. And so cobinamide, if you don't know what it is, and I certainly didn't, has been proven to be an effective cyanide antidote. It is the penultimate precursor to hydroxocobalamin synthesis. Great word. Yeah, penultimate. I, I had to throw that in there. It also has a much higher binding affinity for cyanide than hydroxocobalamin, and it can be given IM. 
Now, the authors go on to study two forms of cobinamide, aqua hydroxocobinamide and dinitrocobinamide. And they wanted to determine their effectiveness at binding cyanide after oral ingestion. The authors also wanted to study the effects of how gastric pH would affect the absorption of oral cyanide. Because we know most oral cyanide you're going to take is in the form of sodium cyanide. And in the acidic environment, right, it forms hydrogen cyanide. So what did they do here? So what they did was they took 30 white New Zealand rabbits. They made sure to slap an Elizabethan collar on them so they could not eat their own poop. And they basically gavaged them with, uh, they all were pre-treated with bicarbonate. So sodium bicarbonate, all got sodium bicarbonate. And then they separated them into groups where they could give them varying concentrations after the, the sodium bicarbonate of sodium cyanide, in addition to the various forms of cobinamide. And they found that many of the ones in the cobinamide groups survived as long as 90 minutes, where the ones that didn't get any cobinamide, they died. That's true. Now, we use 90 minutes because that is the time that the authors determined was enough to say they survived. So we don't know what exactly happened after those 90 minutes. But if we were to take their word, you know, most of these rabbits did survive in both antidote group. So, yes, it has. It, they did show that cobinamide was an effective antidote for large oral ingestions of cyanide. And they did show also that alkalinization, though pretreatment of it, also increased the mean time to cardiac arrest from cyanide oral ingestion. I'm just not really sure how we're going to be able to use this. I mean, not yet. I mean, I guess if it's a proof of concept, I don't know, maybe like you'll have like a kit that has like, you know, like a copinamide tablet in like a box of baking soda. And it'll be like, you know, break in case of poisoning with cyanide. Hmm. You could do that. I mean, but, you know, it's a, it's a cool animal study. Anytime that they have to prevent the uh, coprophagy, which I'm probably saying incorrect, is uh, it's always good. Yeah, cool study. Again, you know, if you're getting poisoned with cyanide, yeah, I would love to have one of these kits around. I'm just not sure how many times you're told that you're poisoned while you're actually being poisoned. Right. And that you have time to pre-treat yourself. But if you were, this is what you would use. Where do you think you're going to put a tree that big? Bend over and I'll show you. You've got a lot of nerve talking to me like that, Griswold. I wasn't talking to you. So I think uh, let's go into a little carbon monoxide and hyperbarics. What do you think? I'd love to. All right, so we got this study here. It's a single versus multiple hyperbaric sessions for carbon monoxide poisoning in a murine model. Uh, this was done by Carstairs et al. So, so this is, is this going to put an end to the debate? Is it, This is it, right? This is it. This is the study where once and for all we're going to figure out does this work and how many treatments we get. I mean, I can stop arguing with David Jerlink on Twitter about this. We can just be done with it. Yeah, well, not so fast. Damn it. So, right, hyperbarics has been advocated to decrease delayed neurologic sequelae after carbon monoxide poisoning. And the one study that we all cite, you know, people who are supporters of hyperbaric oxygen, is the Weaver et al. study, which showed a 21 and 15% absolute reduction in cognitive sequelae at 6 weeks and 12 months, respectively. However, this was following three treatments of hyperbaric oxygen, one compared to normal baric oxygen. 
And what's interesting, right, every treatment center only gives one treatment of hyperbaric oxygen. So not quite sure how we parlay it into one treatment, but, you know, that seems that's, to be kind of standard if you are going to go the hyperbaric route, right? That's, that's how, are you, wait, are you a weaver or are you a shine castle? I'm a, I'm a weaver person. You're a, yeah. All right. So you're, so I, I'm, I was trained as a weaver person. But um, but it's really easy to get to a chamber in San Diego. Like no one has to go through snow. No one has to fly. I mean, there's no like you know, it's not really that bad of traffic. Just asking. I just want to know where you stood on it. Yeah, there's not too many downsides. You know, there is the thought of you know seizures being induced by a hyperbaric oxygen treatment. But otherwise, not too many downsides. Barotrauma. Barotrauma. Well, yeah, I take that. Yeah, barotrauma could be somewhat problematic. All right. Fair enough. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'm ranting. Go ahead. Yeah, so what I mean, what the authors wanted to see in this study, though, is see if there was any difference between one treatment and three treatments in an animal study. So what they did was they took these mice, and they uh, then basically kind of would assess their memory. They'd put them on a floor with a platform, and they would shock the mice when they were on the floor, so they would jump up onto a platform. And then they measured how long it would take them to jump off the floor onto the platform, and then how quickly they would forget and jump back onto the floor. Yeah. They then used this training to determine how well the mice would remember after being exposed to carbon monoxide and then treated. And so they took the animals, they divided them into four groups, one that received no treatment. All were exposed to carbon monoxide, so one received no treatment. Two received normal baric oxygen. Third received uh, one session of hyperbaric oxygen. And the fourth received three sessions of hyperbaric oxygen. They killed off two mice at the very beginning after being exposed to carbon monoxide just to determine their levels. And they found the two mice had levels of 48 and 48.3%. So what were their results after all of this? If I could get a drum roll, please. They don't pay for that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, what they found was there was absolutely no difference between the controls and the carbon monoxide poisoned mice who got treatment. Oh, man. Yeah. I thought it was going to settle it. Like, it, you know what I mean? Like, if you have one of those, um, like, if those Alexas, you know what I mean? Like, if you have, like, the, the thing from Amazon where you can just ask it to, like, I don't know if you've ever seen these things. You could just ask it to settle an argument. You know, like, Alexa, flip a coin. It's like heads. Done. I was hoping it would do that. I mean, <clears throat> you know, ideally, they cite some studies that where they use mazes, and maybe that might be a better approximation of, you know, where they are cognitively and where they are after being poisoned with, uh, with carbon monoxide. And that's probably really hard to do. I imagine, like, it's really, really hard to get those little suckers in, in mazes and train them and, and all kinds of stuff. They don't say whether or not these animals were allowed to eat their poop or not, but, I'm, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think they got collars either to stop them. Just little tiny rats' poop. collars? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, you always stuck with the dilemma of an animal model, too. I mean, because... How well does the memory of a mouse being shocked and it retaining that compare to that of a human being and its cognitive function you yeah. know, a month, two months afterwards? You know, it's not really apples to apples or, for that matter, even, you know, food to food. Um, <laughs> food to furniture. But, I mean, that, yeah. and, but look, if gosh, you know, if a rat can't remember to jump off an electrified plate, imagine if that's a, if that's a person with a, a fairly complicated job. And just a little bit, you know what I mean? Like just, just a little tiny bit, like, you know, a, a resident. So a resident gets exposed uh, to carbon monoxide and they, they can't just do like a little bit of their job. Like that's, it's going to game over, 
right? Yeah, especially if they have, like you said, a real difficult job that requires, you know, high-level cognitive functioning. That could be a problem. And But, you know, what this study was good for, it kind of started asking that question, you know, what's the difference between one treatment and three treatments? Yeah. And, you know, because we are, we're treating these people with only one treatment of hyperbaric oxygen, and we, and we don't know if that's the correct dose. Maybe it should be three treatments. Right. Maybe it shouldn't be any. Uh, but I think this is the beginning of looking at that difference. But, you know, the hard thing is, is no one ever showed a really good convincing difference, at least in people with with one, you know what I mean, with the current regimen. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's definitely tough, but um, gosh, neat, neat work. So how do you, how do you want to close that out? I mean, like, you know, really interesting work. And then you got to start looking at really what is the, the, the ideal regimen. Like if you believe in this, then what's the ideal regimen to best benefit the patient? Is that a fair? I think so. And, you know, and uh, I think this is the start to that. Yeah, that's, that's great. All right. So why don't we go into our new frontier here. The uh, title of this article is Patient Assessment Using Wearable Audiovisual Streaming Technology. And this was by Skolnick et al. And it's coming out of uh, Arizona. And this study was kind of a follow-up out of this pilot study that was done out of UMass, where they determined the efficacy of using Google Glass for their patient interviews. In that smaller study, they found that Google Glass and being able to see and hear the patient changed the management 56% of the time. Not bad. No, pretty good, right? Pretty large time. So half the time it changed the management over a phone call. Yeah. Uh, so that was big. So what did these authors try to do? They wanted to go further and study and compare the examination done on Google Glass to the gold standard, and that would be physical exam at the bedside. Still the gold standard. Still the gold standard, yeah. So their method. So this was all patients that were admitted to their MedTalk service. On-site investigator performed physical exam uh, when the patient was admitted while wearing this Google Glass device. There was then a remote investigator who wasn't involved in the patient care, and he received all the audiovisual fields. After the interview, both investigators filled out an 18-point physical examination key, which included EKG. What were their results? Out of the 50 patients, right, half were male, half were female. 24% uh, of the patients were intubated. Seven were admitted for withdrawal symptoms and five from snake bites. So I have to say a pretty good mix of toxic patients. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that is me that they, they all be withdrawal with like one or two snakes, but yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you have to say the external validity is already pretty good. Not bad. And then they found on almost all parts of the physical exam and EKG findings that there was moderate to substantial strength of agreement uh, between the two examiners. The only exception was that of pupil size and pupillary response to light. And that's not bad. I actually will trust someone else telling me what someone's pupil size is. Right? I mean, I think that if I had to trust someone blindly with are their pupils big or small or is the QRS normal or not normal? Um, I think you'd find much wilder and of more consequence uh, variation in the EKG question. I agree. I agree. So, you know, the authors, they, they rightly conclude here that the Google Glass demonstrated a potential benefit for rural hospitals that might not have a toxicologist on staff and that telemedicine going forward might be feasible 
you know, as a way to kind of improve utilization of hospital resources. I think, look, this is something that we're all going to need to to maybe have uh, like our, our foot in that pond to extend our services. That's something that my group's looking at as well. My only, I guess my only kind of question or concern is that the people wearing the Google Glass were were MedTalk's fellows who definitely already know more, even if midway through their first year, than most people maybe managing one of these cases that aren't toxicologists. So they can, you know, swing their head around to what they need to look at, which is kind of why like, I kind of prefer if you already have it, like we already have the infrastructure in place to use a stroke robot. It doesn't really like swivel too much without you doing anything. You can kind of control it as long as you know, you can rely on another human being to wheel it up and turn it off and maybe hold an EKG up, kind of golden. So I don't need to rely on a trained someone else on the end of that on the end of that uh, line there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point. You know, uh, like you said, these are tox fellows examining it. They know what to look at. And so, you, you know, maybe it would have been more beneficial to get in somebody, uh, you know, a nurse or even just, you know, a medical resident. Uh, who wasn't doing any toxicology, didn't know much, uh, you know, the kind of person you would get at one of these rural hospitals. Uh, maybe that would have been a little bit more beneficial. You know, the other point, too, is I think we, if we do use this, I hope we use it going forward just like the telestroke, yeah. which is, you know, you use it for the first hour to see the patient because the toxicologist can't get in to see the patient. But then after that, you know, it's patient, you know, at patient bedside and actually seeing the patient, you know, for the rest of their hospital stay, not just using this as a way to continually follow the patient through the hospital stay. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, but look, you still need to be trained to interpret the data that comes through. And most people who work as C-SPIs are in poison centers are just not trained um, to, to be able to handle that data. So hopefully we won't really, that's not really going to be a thing because um, that's kind of extending maybe the the purpose of the poison center maybe a little bit over um, the intended use. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So this is not to be used in place of uh, hiring toxicologists on staff. I don't think it should be used at that at all, but rather a way to kind of supplement and allow us not to be living at the hospital 24-7. Right, and we will not let our jobs be taken by robots, damn it. <laughs> All right, Greg, we're really coming down to the end of our time here on the podcast. We're going to keep it under an hour, mercifully. But what would it be if we didn't get to talk about a study from the toxic registry? Toxic, toxic, toxic. I know, you should see his tattoo. It's amazing. Old English and everything. This article is uh, entitled Occupational Snake Bites, a Prospective Case Series of Patients Reported to the Toxic North American Snake Bite Registry by Megan Spires et al., and basically what this is is a query of the registry between 2014 and 2015 that looked at occupational involved envenomations. Um, and so this is pretty well documented uh, else, elsewhere in the world. It's a major cause of occupational injury in parts of Asia and Africa, um, but nothing really on that here. So the toxic registry was kind of a good opportunity to look at uh, these kind of injuries. And so over that over that time, there were 25 envenomations, uh, and 13% were deemed to be occupational. So it, you know, long story short, there's some great occupations here. You really got to check this. A great table on all the different occupations. But in short, I, I like this for a couple of reasons. This is kind of how I think toxics should be used. It doesn't really it takes the data for what it is, not what it was wished to be. 
and um, doesn't overreach at all and kind of gives some neat information and some and you see that people have some interesting jobs like professional mountain biker or snake handler again you know most of the cases did come out of of Arizona so you know if you don't practice in Arizona you have to keep that in mind but it's good I think we reviewed at another one of these studies that didn't really say where all the cases came from so you didn't know if you could really apply it to your practice but if you are a landscaper in Arizona or California gosh it might be a good idea to to keep a, a weather eye out um, also if your patients are any of those people it's it's good to maybe focus some of our educational efforts there but if you see like the people i don't really care about the snake handler caretaker that they got envenomated like sorry that was kind of like part of the description like i feel bad for you or snake remover there was one of those venomous animal educator got bit so feel bad about that but it's not like if I came home from work and, and, and told my kids, like, hey, daddy got puked on today, like, it's not outside the realm of possibility that I would get vomited on, you know, or these people who get bit by a snake. But if you're a construction worker or an oil field worker or a, or a landscaper, you know, it's it, there's some educational efforts. And, and also, you take all the oil field workers and construction workers and landscapers, there's like 11 cases or something. If those people all got, all got envenomated and they all got treated, and they all got admitted, presumably to an ICU, and they all got an average of, you know, anywhere from 12 to 18 vials, let's just say, it doesn't take long to get up to like half a million dollars in, in healthcare. Um, and so for those of us not in the academic world who are trying to show where we can focus our educational efforts or why we're needed to kind of supplement any occupational medicine team at your shop, that's just 11, you know, 11 patients that makes a pretty big difference. So it's kind of, it's nice to see and it's nice to see the registry used like this. Greg, you, you love you some snakes. Yeah, uh, snakes scare me. What about, think about the medicine man. Now the medicine man got bit, I don't know, you know, if it was part of a ritual, I wanted to know more about that, but maybe at another time. A little shaman. I mean, you know, I don't have much to add above what you said because I think you, you hit the nail right on the head because it is. I mean, that's truly the value of toxic and specifically this article. There is a benefit to show how much a toxicologist could save in healthcare dollars as, you know, a resource in education. Or just how much is on the line. You know, like it's a, it, you know, you might say, well, I haven't heard anything about snake bites being a big problem in people's jobs, but you can start to use stuff like this, like, look, that the, the problem's out there. It's just a year of our registry. So hopefully they won't notice I don't work in Arizona, but maybe I can still use it. So anyways, good stuff. Well, well written, well done. All right. So that's going to conclude our podcast for December, a nice holiday podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you guys learned something and were entertained at the same time. I really apologize to all the authors who articles we could not get to. Uh, if you guys have a chance, please go see uh, the JMT because there are a few articles that are really interesting. We just did not have the time. Um, again, you know, if you guys have any feedback for us, please go on Twitter. My handle is at Gregory Lasala. And Jeff Shears was again. At Lepizidine. But, but you know... If you have a, if you don't like the way we did it, um, we've received so few uh, comments or any discourse uh, based on at least the first one. I know the second one was late, and hopefully you'll pick that up as well. Um, but if you want it to be different, you know, give us a give us a shout, give us a tweet, give us an email, give us a anything, a messenger pigeon or something, whatever. But I mean, you got you know we we um, we want to cover what we cover a little bit deeper. Um, but that means that we don't often get to to cover all this. These articles, these journals are jam-packed, 
And so it almost gets to the point where we just read everybody's name uh, and like a two-liner about about the study and then we're done. But um, we think that it might be um, um, more thought-provoking or helpful if we actually kind of dive into a couple of them. Yeah, so please leave us your thoughts, comments, whatever, dissensions, anything. Uh, but again, have a uh, happy holidays to all of you guys and take care. Yep, see you in a couple months. Can I refill your eggnog for you? Get you something to eat? Drive you out to the middle of nowhere? Leave you for dead? No, I'm doing just fine, Clark. <sighs>